He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Amen. Friends, why are these words so precious to Christians? Why are these words so precious to Christians? Is it because it gives us an excuse one Sunday every year to put on our nice drab? Look at you, looking good. Is it because Jesus' resurrection means we get to scatter plastic eggs throughout our backyard in hopes of turning our sweet angels into sugar-high rascals? Is it because we're looking forward to gathering with family and friends around a honey-baked ham in just a couple hours? No, friends, the resurrection of Jesus has supernatural significance. The resurrection of Jesus has eternal significance, doesn't it? For example, the resurrection serves as the decisive proof of everything that Jesus claims in his lifetime. It confirms his appointment as the messianic anointed king, fulfilling the scriptures. It shows his triumph over death and the demonic forces. It demonstrates that he has paid the full wages of sin. It inaugurates the end-time resurrection of the dead, and it ushers in the new creation in itty-bitty seed form. In short, the resurrection is the reason for Christian hope. It creates this sort of forward-looking, faith-filled hope that Christians desperately need. And hope right now seems like a rare commodity. You know, the latest mood polls says that the good majority of Americans are far more worried than hopeful. Hope has become such a precious and elusive commodity. As humans, we experience the unique pain of seeing a world that ought to be well-ordered but has gone terribly wrong. Maybe you've experienced this in the last 12 months. Maybe it was a diagnosis that came your way. Maybe you developed arthritis and you're just feeling the frailty of your own physical body. Maybe in the last year you've lost a loved one or you've endured some sort of difficult trial. We feel the pain and the tension between the quote-unquote monster God who seems to be running this world and the true God we hope actually is. Now, to help us sort this out, we're going to look at an interesting character in the Old Testament, in the Bible. His name is Job. So I want you to turn to Job chapter 19. There's uh, Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Uh, It's on page 453, Job 19. Job is a man who endured so much unjust suffering. Friends, when we suffer, when a loved one suffers, what is the question we often ask? Why? Why? That's the question that reverberates through most of Job. Why? We ask that same question, don't we? The widow asks, why did he have to die so young? We had great plans for retirement. The elderly wife asks, why did he get Alzheimer's? Why do I have to live this with with this agonizing, ever so gradual bereavement? The troubled Christian asks, why did I get this job? which has become so frustrating each day. Another asks, why was my childhood so difficult? Why did my parents get divorced, leaving such a long shadow of pain in me? 
A tired mom asks, why was my son born handicapped? Friends, we've all asked these sorts of questions, haven't we? And the question that lies beneath all of those questions is this. Who is running this world anyway? Who's running this world? Is it the monster God? Or is there a good and just and loving God that is over this all? Let's read our passage, and we're going to get going here. So our passage, Job chapter 19, starting in verse 23. I wish that my words were written down, that they were recorded on a scroll or were inscribed in in a stone forever by an iron stylus and lead. But I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the end, he will stand on the dust. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him, and not as a stranger. My heart longs within me. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. This morning I have the privilege, the incredible privilege, of showing you the following staggering truth. It's the main point of this passage. You'll see it on your screen. Here it is. Even in your darkest days, Christian, you have this sure hope. Jesus has been raised to guarantee your vindication. I'll say it again. Even in your darkest days, you, Christian, have this solid, certain hope. Jesus has been raised to guarantee your vindication. You know, vindication is an important biblical motif. Uh, We don't talk about it enough, and it's profoundly connected to Jesus' resurrection, as we'll soon see. Here's the first thing I want to point out from our passage. What do we see here? We see a heartfelt longing for vindication. So put your eyes on verses 23 and 24. And before we look at these verses in particular, uh, let's kind of uh, look at the context. What has happened to Job? What is Job's story? Now, according to the Bible, Job was, this is chapter one, this is the first verse in Job. Uh, Job is a upright and man who fears God and he turns away from evil. And so God blesses him with family and possessions and servants so that he was, quote unquote, the greatest of all people in the east. And so when Satan told God that Job was faithful only because God had blessed him, God then allows Satan to take away all of Job's blessings one by one to test him, to test his faith. What's Job going to do? And so Job underwent intense suffering from losing his family to losing his property and possessions to enduring physical torments like boils on his skin. But friends, Job continued to worship God, even as he struggled to trust him, even as he struggled to have a right view of God. And so then show up these three friends. Now, we all have friends like these three. They mean well, I think. They seem to love you. They seem to care for you. But boy, do they give terrible advice. And here come Job's friends. They, they've been telling him all along to repent. Of course, of course you're suffering, Job. Of course you feel like God is against you. You must have some secret hidden sin, and, and you need to repent. Well, wait a second. Does suffering in our lives mean we've done something wrong? Sort of spiritual tit for tat? 
Can you imagine, friends, if God actually was like this? If God was actually this kind of monster God, this, this God of karma? If you do bad, bad is going to come towards you. If you do good, though, then God will bless you. Well, friends, reality is before a holy God, Job and his friends and every person in this room, we would have zero ground to stand on before a holy God, right? Because we are all sinful and thus all deserve death and judgment. And so suffering is the horrible consequence of sin. After Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, this entire world was plunged into sin and suffering and evil. And I'm not, I'm not just talking about tornadoes and cancer and murder, but the enemy himself running afoul in this world. So Job in chapter 19 begins to wrestle, begins to wrestle with his friends. He also begins to wrestle with God. Look at verses 8 through 11 of chapter 19. He, now he's referring to God, he has blocked my way so that I cannot pass through. He has veiled my paths with terror. He has stripped me of my honor and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side so that I am ruined. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me and he regards me as one of his enemies. And Job's like, where is this God of justice? Aren't I one of the faithful? Aren't I one of God's friends? Now look at verse 12. His troops advance together. They construct a ramp against me and camp around my tent. Friends, imagine if I go for a night's camping in Red River Gorge and I wake up at 5 a.m. I hear some noises. Wake up at 5 a.m. and I kind of poke my head outside my tent, you know, and I see tanks and gun emplacements and bunkers. And overhead, overhead is this, you know, the, the, the entire U.S. Air Forces. They're, they're like right there, Right? all bent on attacking me. I don't know, maybe that feels a little overkill, right? Well, friends, that's how Job is feeling. Why is God attacking me and pressing himself against me? Well, then in verses 13 through 19, we see Job complaining that this so-called monster God has isolated him. No friends, no family, no house guests. He's all alone. This monster God has been picking on Job, bullying Job. The root issue here is justification. Job wants to be accounted as righteous. Job wants to be publicly vindicated, but he seems to be treated as if he's guilty. God seems like some kind of vicious monster who tears at him and uproots his hope. Now, what can we learn from this? Before we get to the good news of the resurrection, we're going to get there here in just a minute. What can we learn from this experience? Well, two quick things. First of all, God wants you to bring your strongest complaints to him. Job is wrestling with how to view God, but part of Job's journey here is to bring his struggles honestly to God. And so, friends, what are the weights on your heart? Yes, even on this Easter morning when we're supposed to be feeling great and happy and joyful, we're going to get there. Remember, before we can experience the good news of salvation, we must first recognize the bad news, right? And so that's kind of what we're doing here. And the more we recognize the bad news the more we recognize our need, the more glorious the salvation that Jesus provides will feel to us. So, yeah, so, so let's be real just for a second here. What mental splinters do you carry that's keeping you from the Lord? You know, even if our thinking about God is wrong, and it would be great if 
if we could bring our honest thoughts to him and let God reteach us about himself. Which brings me to the second application. Recognize that your complaints may not have a lot of truth in them. Brothers and sisters, don't believe everything you think. You simply cannot always be trusted to tell yourself the truth. And this is why we should stay in this book, right? That's what Job needed to. He needs to stay connected to the Lord. So yeah, bring your complaints to the Lord, but expect your thinking to get reconfigured a little bit. God brings relief by reconfiguring your perspective, not only by reconfiguring your circumstances. Now, what about Job's perspective needed to be reconfigured? I want you to put your eyes on verse 21. This is really interesting. He's speaking to his friends and he says, have mercy on me, my friends, have mercy. And here's his reason, for God's hand has struck me. Is that true? Is it true that God's hand struck Job? Now, we who have such a high view of God's sovereignty, we would affirm that. We think of all of the other places in the Old and New Testament that speak of God's hand providing guidance and provision and gifts to his people and so forth and kind of overseeing the world. He's the great orchestrator of all things. We want to affirm all of that. But in this particular book, it was not God's hand. It was Satan's. So earlier in Job, Satan says to God, stretch out your hand, God, and touch all that Job has. But this is how God responds. He says, behold, all that, all that he has is in your hand, Satan. And we see this throughout the book as well. And so, of course, God gave Satan permission. God has Satan on a leash, but it was Satan's hand, not God's, that actually did these terrible things. So friends, Job got it wrong. And even as we look through verses 8 through 12, we see, I mean, the, the intensity of his language. Should we, be able, should we connect the intensity and these accusations to God himself? Now hear me now, because this is important. Satan masquerades as God and persuades Job in this case that it is directly the Lord who has turned against him. Job can't see whose hand is striking him. But we, we can see it, right? And what does this mean for us? Let me put this simply. God rules all things. God rules over all things. But under his rule, there is suffering in this world. Under his rule, there is a sinful, evil world. Under his rule is a wicked ruler who has real power and real influence named Satan. You see, friends, sometimes even the faithful, like Job, have a faulty view of God. Maybe the monster God you hate so much isn't the true God. Maybe it's Satan. So Job is wrestling with these sorts of thoughts. And then notice again, verse 23 and 24. Job's pretty sure he's going to die. He's been fighting to prove his innocence, but it's been essentially a losing battle. When he dies, his friends is probably going to put something on his gravestone like this. Here lies Job who was a sinner with secret sins and refused to repent. He has paid for his sins at last. The justice of God has been vindicated by his death. May he not rest in peace. So Job says here, let me read the verses and then I'll give you some comments. He says here, I wish that my words were written down, that they were recorded on a scroll or were inscribed in stone forever by an iron stylus and lead. He's like, you know what? I hope someone someday will hear me out. 
I hope my protest will be recorded permanently in some scroll or some book or engraved in some stone. Of course, the irony is, here we are reading it, right? He longs to be vindicated. He longs to be vindicated. So listen, friends, I don't know the ins and outs of your life. I don't know how you've been harmed by others, the abuses that you've received. I don't know how you've harmed others, the abuses that you've given. But this I know. Your longing for healing, your longing for forgiveness, your longing for vindication, that is a good longing to want healing for the wounds you've received, to want forgiveness for the the wounds that you've given other people for your sinful acts. This is a Christian sort of longing. Of course, we're tempted to take that longing and act sinfully and act negatively to maybe sink our hearts into depression or lash out in fury and take vengeance or just kind of sinfully escape. And these are all sinful impulses. But that longing for justice, that longing for vindication, That's a good thing. Now, what I want you to see this morning is that Easter, the resurrection, is the answer to all of this. What I want you to want to do now is to kind of aim that longing that we all feel, aim that longing in the only place where relief can be found, the only place where the tension can be relieved. And thankfully, this is exactly where Job goes next, okay? So let's look at verses 25 through 27, and what we see is a confident hope in vindication, a confident hope in vindication. Let me read verse 25. But I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end he will stand on the dust. This is the most famous verse in the book of Job. It's the pinnacle of his hope. If you look before and after this verse, you're going to see a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, a lot of lamenting. But here lies the climax of Job's hope. And you'll notice with me, friends, that this hope is rooted in a God who will redeem and vindicate and raise him from the dead. I closed the Good Friday service just a couple days ago by saying, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. That's the turn that we're about to make. Friends, the only thing, the only thing that gives Job hope in his suffering is that there is a God And this God is a good God. And this good God will someday vindicate him. Friends, the U.S. government may stand against you. Your friends may betray you. Your family might misunderstand you. Your coworkers may misrepresent you. But if you are a Christian, God will never forsake you. Job now wonderfully makes the same kind of jump from yearning to a faith-filled hope. Notice again, verse 25, but I know. What does Job know? He knows two things. He has, first of all, a living redeemer who will stand on the earth. And then secondly, as we look at verses 26 and 27 in just a few moments, Job will see this redeemer with his own eyes. So first of all, Job has a living redeemer. Now, that word redeemer, it's kind of this Christian word, right? Like the cross or savior or blood of the lamb. It's like we hear it so often, but what does it mean? What does it mean? Well, it's the Hebrew word goel, okay? So I want you to repeat after me. I'm going to teach you some Hebrew this morning. Goel, goel. That's redeemer. 
And a goel is someone tied to you by covenant. Usually it was a relative whose calling is to stand for you when you were wronged. And so if you were murdered, he saw to it to punish the murderer. If your share in the promised land was under threat, he would safeguard it. If your widow was childless, he gave her a child. So in every way, this goel stood for you when you couldn't stand for yourself. He is your goel, your champion, your vindicator. And I want you to notice here in verse 25, make no mistake, friends, Job is saying that God himself, who lives forever, will be someday his goel. That's only because God can do the exoneration that he desperately wants. Only God can right every wrong against him. And what will this Redeemer do? Notice, notice the end of verse 25. Job knows by faith that this Redeemer will stand on the dust. That's a reference to Job's grave. Better than a fading uh, tombstone inscription, there's going to be an eternal vindicator standing on his grave, attesting to his right relationship with God. Friends, same thing can be said of every Christian in this room. Isn't this comforting? That if you are a genuine Christian, God himself, not a relative or your best friend or the highest human court of appeal, God himself will one day defend you, avenge you, commend you, uphold you, and vindicate you far and long into eternity. Isn't that good news? That's the first thing that Job knows. Here's the second thing. Look at verses 26 and 27 with me. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him and not as a stranger. My heart longs within me. Job will see this divine redeemer with his own eyes after his death. Now, what is this in reference to? It's in reference to his own resurrection. And not just that he will be resurrected, but with resurrected eyes, with new eyes, he will be able to see God face to face. In Psalm 17, David cries out something similar. He says, as for me, I will be vindicated and will see your face. Job believes this will happen. One day, one day this is going to happen. He's going to be vindicated. He's going to see God face to face. But I don't think that Job understands to the fullest the meaning of his words when he uttered them. He had some understanding, but I think there's more. Today on Easter Sunday, we see far more in what Job says here than I think what he contemplated centuries ago. So he believed that one day God would be his goel, that he would be raised from the dead, vindicated, prepared to see his God, meet his God face to face. But Job had no idea how that would happen. He had no idea about Jesus. But we do, don't we, friends? And it's tempting to, to very quickly apply Job's story to ours, right? Hey, Pastor, this is great. You should end the sermon right here and go home and eat some lunch, right? I'm going to get what Job got to because I'm a Christian. But before we can fully apply Job's experience to ours, we must take one crucial intermediate step. For in Job's life and suffering and vindication, do we not see a pattern that gets filled up in Christ? Was it not Jesus who identifies with Job's relentless sufferings, who suffered unto death, 
even though he was truly innocent. I mean, Job was a sinner. He was not fully innocent, but faith-filled and right with God as a result. Jesus was truly and fully and gloriously innocent. Nothing ever could be brought against him. And like Job, Jesus had friends, some of his own people who slandered him and accused him. While Job's descent into this kind of hellish suffering was awful, something most of us will never experience, Job's story turned before he died, right? As God would eventually bring him relief and blessing. But Jesus, it went the other direction, didn't it? His descent, descent into hellish suffering kept going. It didn't let up. It got worse as one by one, everyone abandoned him. Starting with the religious elites and his own people, the Jews, his disciples, and then even his best friend, Peter. And there as Jesus hung on the cross, it would be God himself who would abandon him and forsake him. You see, there was once a real believer whom the monster god Satan attacked with all of his resources, and he was this blameless God-man who would experience a terrible death he did not deserve. Whatever horrible injustices and terrible abuses and twisted scenarios that humanity has endured, be that the Holocaust or the killing fields of Cambodia or 9-11 or the recent school shooting in Nashville, None of those are the greatest injustice in human history. That label is reserved only for God's holy and innocent son on a cross. Now, I don't say that to diminish human suffering, not at all. I say that to elevate the absolute scandal and atrocity of the cross. You see, friends, for Easter to mean anything at all for you and me, it had to first mean something for Jesus. Before Jesus could become our Goel, God had to become his. And the empty tomb is the place this happened. The cross and empty tomb remind us yet again that this world does not first revolve around us. It revolves around God, right? We can get our hearts above the tree line of our lives and see the bigger picture, see the cross, see the resurrection, and see in Jesus' life all of the things he was claiming and yet all of the things that people were mocking him for and not believing that he was saved. And so the empty tomb is the place that God's beloved son would be vindicated by God. That everything he claimed about himself, that he is God's son, that he is the king of kings, that he is the Lord of life, that he is the suffering servant, that he is the second person of the Trinity, it's all true. And, and if we can learn to first of all glory in this and revel in this and worship God because of this, before we get to me, well, I think we've got something there. And then, and then, only then, recognize quickly that in Jesus' vindication and victory lies ours. For Jesus has now become our Goel. We can say with Job, for I know that my Redeemer lives. We have a living Redeemer in Christ. He's alive today. He's sitting at the right hand of God. He's praying and interceding for his people. You see, friends, there is something far worse than us being mistreated and wanting justice. And that's us mistreating God without justice being served. 
for we have sinned against him. And all of his accusations against us are 100% accurate. So the question isn't only, will God vindicate me because of all the stuff they've done or this world has done to me? But rather, will God vindicate me because of all the stuff I've done against him? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus' death and resurrection are the answer to both of those questions. Jesus' death provides the payment for our sins. Jesus' resurrection provides the promise of vindication. In one sense, that vindication has already occurred for Christians. We have been declared righteous. In another sense, that vindication is incomplete because God's declaration hasn't gone public yet. That's coming in the next stage, at the end of this stage. That's a day that's coming, and we believe that. We trust that. That's part of our hope. We believe that the same God who stood on Christ's tomb and acted as his goel to vindicate him by resurrection, he will one day stand upon the grave of every man and woman who are in Christ to act as our goel. We believe that any vindication that we receive on that last day it's by grace. It's by grace alone. It's not built on your goodness. It's not built on your charms or your popularity or your likability. It's not built on your parents' spiritual coattails. It's not built on your current spiritual resume. Your vindication is built upon the vindication of another. His name's Jesus. If you're not a Christian, let me talk to you for just a moment. How can you become vindicated by God? How can Jesus become your goal, your redeemer? Well, you must repent and believe. That's what the Bible says. If you can renounce your own life, renounce all the ways you've tried to vindicate yourself and then connect your life by faith to this living redeemer, Jesus, well, then you're in. But if you don't, then Job's suffering becomes a little picture of judgment that is coming. You know, Jesus once said, this is John chapter 3, he once said that you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And so we're all born, born physically. He's talking about being born supernaturally, born spiritually. And so let me warn you, friends. If you were never born twice, one day you will wish that you were never born once. If you won't have Jesus as your redeemer, one day you will have Jesus as your judge. I don't want that for you. You know, it was just a day or two after Easter that I became a Christian. Oh, about, uh, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, something like that. And I just wonder whether today is the day of salvation for someone in this room. I just, I, I want to plead with you on this Easter day to repent to belief to trust in Christ alone for forgiveness. Don't be captive to the lies of this world. Don't get so swept up in the suffering and injustices of this world that you miss the one who suffered far more injustice than any of us. Trust in him. Trust in the one who suffered great injustice to save sinners. But if you are a Christian, oh man, I mean... Look at this rock-solid hope. Listen, this world can do its worst. It did its worst against Jesus. It put him on the cross. It tried to erase his memory from the history book. It tried to twist and distort his story. This world can do its worst to you. Satan can attack you. 
can hand you crosses, can mete out all kinds of pains to you, can accuse you, can trouble you. But friends, Jesus rose from the grave. He is alive today. He is victorious. He is vindicated. And so shall you be, Christian. What hope we have? 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know, we have a little garden. It's full of weeds now. So this is like two, three years ago. We had this little garden in the, in the backyard, minuscule. And our kids loved watching, you know, the tomato plants start to grow and, and the little buds and, you know, you see the tomatoes start to set. And then you see red and they're at the window and they're pressing themselves against the glass and they run out and they oh, look at the first tomato, right? And, you know, it's exciting because you know there's an avalanche of tomatoes coming. Or in our case, just maybe three or four. But the first fruits... The first fruits. It's the promise that more is coming. So, friends, Paul says Jesus is the first fruits. The first fruits of what? Of God's new creation. God has started a new humanity with Jesus. In Jesus, God inaugurates this new creation right in the middle of the old one, right? And guess what? You, Christian, are part of the spiritual bumper crop. You, Christian, and together with all the saints, are the first crop of the new creation, born anew, raised to new life, to show off to this sinful world the quality and the purity of the coming world. We've got a little garden that's growing right here at Faith Church. And I just wonder, do you see it? Do you see the resurrection life here? Do you see vindicated lives, even now, living in the freedom of being right with God? This is what Easter is about. Even in your darkest day, you Christian, whoa, you Christian can have this hope. You can have this sure and certain hope that Jesus was raised, first of all, for his vindication, but then also yours. Amen.